Good morning, everybody. How you guys feeling? Feeling good? All right. Great to have you here and uh, super, super excited about the Hughes Life Group that's launching and uh, really, really pumped about that. I love what Casey said uh, in that video just about uh, the significance of biblical community, about how meaningful and how necessary it is uh, for us to be with other people as we journey uh, in following Jesus together. And that's why we do life groups. That's also why we do this. It's why we get together like this on the weekend. It's a way of just being uh, with each other, being with God's people, and uh, hopefully getting a chance to hear from God, from his word, and then to live that out during the week. So very, very thankful that you're able to be with us. And so uh, let me just say that if you are a guest, if it's your first time here, it's your first time catching us on live stream, we do wanna extend just a very special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest. And I do wanna say that if you're new to Grace or if you're new to the series, you're actually catching us in the midst of a series that we've been in that's called The Way of Jesus. And uh, if you are just joining us, what we're doing in this series is actually very simple. Uh, we are just working our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke. That's what we're doing. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Luke or what that is, uh, basically the Gospel of Luke is a book in the New Testament, and it is a first century account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we are kind of looking at this first century account of the life of Jesus, and we're just looking at it one step at a time and working our way through that. Uh, we've actually encouraged the people in our church and those who are in our life groups uh, to read through the Gospel of Luke together. So many of you guys have been doing that and that's been a good time. Uh, today, I'm excited as we continue in, in this series. Uh, like, like you can see, we titled this series, The Way of Jesus. And some of you might be wondering, uh, why is it that we chose that title? Why did, we, why did we land on that as the title for us and going through the series in the Gospel of Luke? And I actually think that today is gonna add a lot of clarity to the reason why we picked this title for this series. And so uh, without saying too much more, I actually just wanna invite you, let's just get right into it. Grab your Bible, if you would, and if you would join me in Luke chapter nine. So this is, as we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, this is where we're gonna find ourselves, Luke chapter nine. And uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you here today, you can use one of the Bibles under the chairs, page 842 is where you're gonna find the Gospel of Luke. And so I would just love it if you'd meet me there and uh, we'll get to Luke chapter nine together. Now, uh, before we read the passage that we're gonna look at here together today, I think it's first very important that we spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the Mandalorian. Yeah, I think it's important that we start there. Now, uh, I gotta admit something to you uh, just right here from Jump Street, and that's this. I am actually not a big Star Wars fan. And I know, I know, I know for some of you, immediately you're like, that's an indication we can't be friends. And I know a lot of you guys like it and you're into it. For whatever reason, I just never could really get into it. It just wasn't my thing. But I have to tell you that as a non-Star Wars fan, I loved The Mandalorian. I thought it was awesome. And if you didn't see the show, it's a great show. And in the show, The Mandalorian, these, these, these guys that are called The Mandalorian, they actually had a, uh, a saying that they would say to each other. And some of you might remember what it was. You remember what it was? This is the way. This is the way. So the Mandalorian would say to each other this statement, this is the way. And if you haven't seen the show, basically what they were referring to is it was a code of conduct or it was a manner of lifestyle that the Mandalorians would live. Now, like I said, I'm not a Star Wars guy, so the best that I could understand what the way of the Mandalorian was, and I'm, not, I'm sure it included a lot of things, but I think it, you could really boil it down to two things. The way of the Mandalorian really was these. It was first off, never taking off your helmet. That's what included. And number two, kicking lots of butt. And uh, that's basically what I, I figured out. I know some of you guys are Star Wars people and you're like, you, you know so much more than I do. And you're probably going, Psh, dude, that's so overly simplistic. You don't know the Mandalorian. They're so much more sophisticated than that. So I actually looked into it. 
And I went to a website that's called Wikipedia. And um, I'm not making this up, that's real, which is another validation of why I'm not a Star Wars guy. So I went to Wikipedia. Here's what it said about The Mandalorian. It said, the way, the way of The Mandalorian was a religion that was followed by Orthodox Mandalorians such as the Children of the Watch. Now, I have no idea what that is. The way of The Mandalore involved protecting fellow Mandalorians, but also wearing a helmet at all times. The way stated that if a Mandalorian removed their helmet in front of another living being, they were no longer permitted to wear it or not considered Mandalorians anymore unless they redeemed themselves in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. Mandalorians who adhered to the way would state, this is the way, when following its ideals. So after doing some extensive study, I found out that the way of the Mandalorian really involves two things. Never taking off your helmet and kicking <laughs> lots of butt. That's pretty much what it was, right? Now, why do I, uh, why do I want to talk to you about The Mandalorian? Here, here's why. So when I watched that show, and they talked about The Way, the first thing that crossed my mind, I'm not a Star Wars nerd, I'm a Bible nerd. The first thing that crossed my mind was, I thought, now that reminds me of the early church. I know that's exactly what you thought when you were watching The Mandalorian, but why? Here, here's why. Uh, the early church in the first century they were actually recorded for having a way that they referred to themselves as followers of Jesus. And you know what they called themselves? They called themselves followers of the way. That's actually what they called them. In fact, in the book of Acts, which is also in your Bible, it actually records uh, really the first years of the early church. And you're gonna see over and over again in the book of Acts that the followers of Jesus are gonna refer to themselves and they are referred to as followers of the way or people of the way. And what they were referring to is that they were followers of the way of Jesus. And so the question that I really want to think about here with the rest of the time that we have is just very simply this. What is the way of Jesus? What is that way? What is that way? In other words, here's a question. What is the pattern and what is the path that shapes the life of a person who follows Jesus Christ? That's the question. What are the, what are the ideals and what are the defining features of the way of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Now, the reason I think this is such an important question and is worth our time here this morning is because very simply, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that a mistaken view of the way of Jesus is gonna lead to, lead to a mistaken view of discipleship to Jesus. So very simply, the word discipleship just means following. It just means following. And if we're gonna be people who are following Jesus, if that's our desire, or maybe for some of you, that's your investigate, you're investigating all that right now. But if our desire is to be followers of Jesus, I think it's important that we know what is the way that we're following? What is the pattern that we're following? Because if we misunderstand that, I think we're gonna misunderstand discipleship. We're gonna misunderstand what it means to follow Christ. So the passage we're gonna look at today, I think sheds a whole lot of clarity on this. And we're gonna be looking at verse 51 to 62 in chapter nine. So let's jump in and let's look at this together. So here's what it says, starting off in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, now let me just hit pause here before we go any further because I need to stress to you the importance of this verse. This is a very, very important verse in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you are someone who's journeying through Luke with us, maybe you have a Luke journal like we talked about. If you have that, I want you to underline this verse. I want you to circle this verse. I want you to highlight this verse. I want you to put stars next to this verse. I want you to consider getting it tattooed somewhere. All right, this verse is deeply significant in the Gospel of Luke. And I'll tell you why. This verse marks a pivot point. It's a pivotal point 
in the narrative that we have in the Gospel of Luke. Now, to explain the significance of this, I have to first introduce you to something that's called the journey motif. The journey motif. Now, that might sound kind of nerdy, but you gotta stick with me for a second because I think this is very critical. So in the Gospel of Luke, commentators will point out that Luke is gonna use the imagery of a journey to depict the life of Jesus. So he's gonna use the imagery and he's gonna use the language of a journey, of a walk, to define the way of Jesus. And so this story that Luke tells, this journey that Jesus is on, follows a particular arc. There's a story arc to it. And basically it looks like this. So I'll show you. This is what commentators would say. They would say that the journey motif, the gospel of Luke, could be outlined like this. This is the way it goes. It begins with Jesus's journey from heaven to earth. And so you're gonna see in Luke chapter one to Luke chapter four, it talks about the birth of Jesus or what we might call the incarnation of Jesus from being at the right hand of the Father to coming down to this earth. So he comes from heaven to earth. And then you're gonna see from chapter four to chapter nine, Jesus starts to go around the region of Galilee and he starts to preach the good news of the gospel. He heals people, he, uh, he instructs people, he casts out demons. But then when you get to chapter nine, verse 51, the story takes a notable shift and Jesus begins to go down to Jerusalem. He goes down to Jerusalem. Now it'll take him 10 chapters to get there, but over and over again, we're gonna be reminded he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? The cross. He goes down to the cross. He goes down into death. He goes down into the grave. And so you're gonna see this story arc, heaven to earth, earth to the grave, and then in chapter 24, it shifts, and he journeys into resurrection, and then ultimately, he ascends back into heaven. It's the journey motif, and what we're going to see is that 951, this verse that we just read, is a massive pivot point, and I'm just telling you, the language couldn't be more strong. Look what it says in 951 again. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some of you have translations that says this, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. I love the way the message says it. The message is not a translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase of the Bible, but it says this. It says he steeled himself. So with a steely gaze, Jesus was resolutely set out for Jerusalem. What's this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus was determined it's telling us that Jesus knew where he was going and he knew exactly what he was doing. It's telling us that Jesus was resolute in his decision and his direction and he would not be dissuaded. And where was he going? Where was he setting his face towards? And notice the Bible tells us to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Well, I think that's pretty significant because we know, you and I know what's in Jerusalem. We know what waits him. Uh, we know that what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is his arrest. We know that what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is him being mocked and flogged. We know that what awaits him in Jerusalem is the cross. But it is very clear when you read the Gospel of Luke that his disciples had a very different idea of what Jerusalem meant. They had a very, very different picture of what Jerusalem would have meant for them. See, if you, if you actually go back and look at this, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus has now been doing his ministry up in Galilee. He's been up here, pretty much from chapter four to chapter nine, he's been up here. And you might remember if you were with us, Galilee, we know a little bit about Galilee. And what we know is Galilee was kind of like the backwoods. 
right? Back, the Galilee was like small towns and villages. It was where the fishermen would be. It's where the farming villages would be. That's what it would be. It was Galilee, right? And so Jesus was in Galilee. He was going from town to town, village to village. But now the Bible says he's going to Jerusalem. And if you guys know anything about Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the big city. There's over 100,000 people in Jerusalem. If you actually wanted to make something of yourself, you would go to Jerusalem. That's where you'd go. So for the disciples, in their mind, when Jesus was resolutely sent off for Jerusalem, they had a very different picture of what they meant. For them, they thought that Jerusalem meant a bigger stage. They thought that Jerusalem meant a bigger platform. They thought that Jerusalem meant a throne. See, because Jesus was always talking about a kingdom, right? And he was always talking about how he was gonna bring a kingdom. And now he's going down to Jerusalem and they thought that meant a throne and that meant a crown. In fact, we know this because, do you guys know right before this passage what the disciples were arguing about? Do you guys remember? It's what they were always arguing about. They were arguing about who was gonna be the what? The greatest. Jesus is gonna go be a king. Who's gonna be the greatest? Who calls shotgun in Jesus' throne? That was the idea. But you see, I think it's very clear that when the Bible tells us that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. When the Bible tells us that, I think it's clear that Jesus had a different picture in mind than they did. You see, Jesus knew what was in Jerusalem. And he knew that, yes, there was a crown, but it would be a crown of thorns. And that, yes, it was the entrance to a throne and to a kingdom, but the coronation would be the cross. See, I think for us, this verse is very revealing to the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? And here's what I believe it is. I think we're gonna see that the gospel of Luke is trying to show us. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. That's it. What is the way of Christ? What is it, what is it that marks and what is it that, that shapes the life of a person who follows Jesus? I believe a big part of that is that the way of Jesus involves Across. Now, this, this statement that I put up on the screen, this is a statement that is reinforced and is reiterated in many different ways throughout the Gospels. If you're someone who's familiar with the New Testament, you've seen this before. In fact, just in Luke, I want you to notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said this He said, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, uh, we'll save it. And then later in Luke 14, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So in other words, I'll put it this, to you this way. When Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, he was not simply dying in our place. And he was, he was. But even more than that, he was also setting our pattern. He was also revealing to us what is the way in which a follower of me, a follower of Jesus, is to take. He was defining the pathway of discipleship. What is the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Now, here's the thing, though. I know when I say that, and when you read these passages, and it says that if you're going to follow Christ, that means you need to take up your cross. You need to take up your cross. I know for a lot of us, that might sound intense, and that might even sound heroic. But quite honestly, it can be really confusing. What does that mean? What does that even mean to take up our cross? Right? Like what, practically speaking, what does that look like in your life and in my life to take up our cross every day and follow Jesus? What does that look like? See, and I think sometimes it's confusing because um, sometimes I think we tend to think that a cross means anything, any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, any kind of inconvenience. And you can hear it sometimes in the way that we talk, right? So we, we have this little phrase that we'll say sometimes. We'll say, 
well, I guess it's just the cross I have to bear. Like, we'll say that. And so, uh, for example, this last Thursday, I had to shovel my driveway five times. I'm sure many of you guys did, right? And I might say this. I might say, well, we live in Northeast Ohio, so I guess it's the cross we have to bear living in Northeast Ohio. So is that what Jesus means? Is he just talking about anything that's unpleasant in life or any kind of form of suffering or pain that we face, that, that is, that's what he means by take up your cross? I don't think so. I think Jesus has a very nuanced and specific meaning of what he means when he says that his followers are to take up their cross. Now, what is that? What is that? Well, I actually believe in the rest of this passage that we're going to see, we are going to see four, four aspects of what it means to take up the way of the cross. And what are they? Well, let me, let me show you what I think these four are, and then we'll look at the passage. I think the way of the cross is the way of, first off, sacrificial love for others. So what does it mean to take up your cross? I think we're going to see that the way of the cross, what's involved in that, is it is the way of sacrificial love for others. Number two, the way of the cross, what is that? I believe that it is the way of denying personal comfort. Denying personal comfort, specifically for Jesus. What is the way of the cross? I think the way of the cross is the way of defying cultural expectations. And then lastly, I think the way of the cross is the way of dying to previous allegiances and past regrets. This is what I believe Jesus is gonna say is the way of the cross in this passage. So let's just think about those things together. Let's think about the first one. What is the way of the cross? I think the way of the cross includes sacrificial love for others. So I want you to notice, the Bible's gonna say, Jesus is resolutely set out for Jerusalem, verse 51. Verse 52, look what happens next. And so Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. Because I want you to notice this, Jesus is resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you look at a map, he's in Galilee, He's gonna to go to Jerusalem. The most direct path would be to go through Samaria. Now that seems pretty simple, but there was a problem. And the problem was this, there was a major tension that existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. In fact, the Samaritans in a lot of ways were viewed as enemies by the Jewish people. And so because of that, oftentimes if they took this trip, they would take the long way around. They would inconvenience themselves to stay away from the Samaritan people. But you need to remember, Jesus was resolute on going to Jerusalem, and so he took the direct path. And the Bible tells us that when he sent messengers ahead, the Bible's gonna tell us that they did not welcome him. They would not allow Jesus to stay in Samaria. So it's no surprise, because Jews and Samaritans were enemies, that the Samaritans wouldn't let a Jewish rabbi stay in their land. And so they rejected him, which by the way, this is gonna be the first of many rejections that Jesus faces on his way to Jerusalem. So what do they do? What do they do when they reject Jesus? Well, look what the Bible says. The Bible says when the disciples, specifically James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? That was their response. So the Bible's gonna tell us these two disciples, they actually named them James and John. Now, some of you guys might know them. Two disciples, they actually were brothers. They actually had a nickname. They had a little bit of a reputation. Some of you guys might know their nickname. What was it? They were called the sons of what? Thunder. And some of you guys are like, why'd they get that nickname? Well, I think it's pretty clear. If you're in this passage, why they got that nickname. What was their response? Look at it. Someone opposes Jesus. The Samaritans reject Jesus. And they're like, Lord, you want us to call it on fire from heaven and destroy them? That was their response. What was their response? They're like, boss, you want we should torch them? 
Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's how they talked. I'm just guessing. You want me to torch some boss? Eh, you want us to do that? And, and what, what's going on here? I, I, think it's, I think it's very evident that James and John had a specific vision of what they believed the way of Jesus included. And I think it was a very different vision than we see that Jesus had. You see, I think for James and John, their way, the way that they thought was the way of Jesus, probably looked more like this. They probably thought the way was never take off your helmet and kick lots of butt, or at least the second part. That's what they had in mind. But what happens is, I think you can see by their response here, that their, their idea of the way of Jesus included vengeance to all who would oppose him. I think it's very clear that their vision of the way of Jesus was one that included eliminating any inconvenience that got in their way. I think that it was pretty evident that they thought that the way of Jesus meant canceling anyone who would infringe upon our agenda, the Jesus agenda. I think that it was pretty clear that they had this idea that the way of Jesus meant smiting and judging and nuking all of the enemies and all those who opposed Christ. You see, but Jesus, what did he do? The Bible says that Jesus turned and he rebuked them. He rebuked them. He said, that is not our way. And they went to a different village. You see, I think the sons of thunder, I think these two guys, they had an idea of what the march to Jerusalem was going to look like. But they could not have been more misunderstanding of the way of Jesus. Jesus did not come to destroy his enemies. Jesus came to sacrificially give of himself for the sake of his enemies. What does it mean to take up our cross? Listen, I think practically speaking, it's so clear that the way of the cross is the way of sacrificial love for others. That is the way of the cross. I mean, just think about it. What was the cross for Jesus? The cross was him laying his own rights down and taking pain upon himself for the forgiveness of others, including us. That is a way of sacrificial love and servanthood for the sake of others. Because what does it mean to take up our cross? I think it means to take up this way. It is this way, this is the way that we go, the way of sacrificial love. And I think that shows up for those of us who follow Christ. I think it shows up in every relationship. I mean, for sure, it starts under our own roofs, right? It starts in our own homes. It starts with our spouses. It starts with our children. It starts with our parents. It starts with our siblings. It starts with your roommates. It starts with the people who are right around you. It is willingly giving of yourself for the sake and the benefit of another person. It is at times laying down your rights and even laying down your preferences for the sake of thinking of another person above yourself. I think for sure it starts underneath our own roofs. I think it starts in our church. It starts in the ways that we interact with each other and how we interact with the people in our life group, a willingness to lay down our own comforts, to lay down our own rights for the sake of someone else that they might know or grow or, 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 or somehow be, be stronger in Jesus because of because of our investment. And listen, I think, I think this extends even all the way to the extent of our enemies. I think the cross reveals to us the extent in which we take this sacrificial love. The cross shows us that Jesus didn't even just die for his own disciples and for his own people, but even for the very Samaritans who rejected him. And so I think, I think the question that this should cause us to ask here this morning is just simply this. And this is a question I want you just to ask yourself. Maybe ask God and ask yourself in your own heart, and that's this. What relationship or what relationships in my life is God compelling me to practice sacrificial love? Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. What relationship or what relationships exist in your life right now that you sense that God is calling you to take on the way of the cross 
to pick it up and to follow him in sacrificial love and service. Now, I can't answer that for you because I don't know the landscape of your relationships right now. I can't answer that. But maybe for some of you, maybe there's a challenging family member that exists in your life right now that God is calling you to love in a sacrificial way. Maybe for you right now, there's a relationship where quite honestly, you're in a gridlock and you are waiting for them to take the initiative to serve you and to humble themselves. Listen, I think the way of the cross is telling you, you take that initiative. What would that look like for you to do that? Right, maybe for some of us who are here, there's areas of persistent stubbornness. There's areas where we are clinging to our rights because we feel the need to be justified in what we're thinking and what we're doing. And I'm just saying, maybe the cross is asking you to lay that down. Are there areas of long-held resentment that you're unwilling to let go? And I think that maybe the way of the cross is instructing us to do something different. You know, I think that this question right here, I think this also should, should impact the way that we think about our enemies. You know, I think it should impact the way we think. Are, are there people or are there people groups right now that if you had the power, you would wanna call down fire from heaven on them? Does that exist in your life right now? You know, guys, I think that this actually should really speak into, for those of us who follow Jesus, this should really speak into our posture and the way that we view the world around us. You know, in a culture that seems to be growing in more opposition to the ways of Jesus, what's our posture? Are we just gonna sit back with our, are the people of God just gonna sit back with our arms crossed, just waiting and wishing that God would judge them? Or would we find, be eager and willing to find opportunities to lay down our rights so that other people might be introduced to the goodness of our king? I think there's a way of Jesus, and I think it's the way of the cross. So what is the way of the cross? I think, first off, it's a way of sacrificial love for others. Here's the second thing. I think the way of the cross involves denying personal comfort, denying personal comfort specifically for the things of Jesus. You know, it's interesting, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the Bible's gonna say he starts having these conversations with these different people. And I want you to notice this first guy. The Bible says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. So this guy comes up to Jesus. Apparently, he's super enthusiastic. He's like, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever, whatever you want, I'll go. And then Jesus responded, verse 58, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I was like, that's kind of perplexing because it seems like this guy's super eager to follow Jesus, and then it seems like Jesus is trying to talk him out of it. Like, he's like, I'll follow you wherever go, and Jesus is like, no. And I, you know, I couldn't help but think, if Jesus, uh, you know, if he was a pastor of a church, you can't help but wonder how big his church would be. You know, like it seems so paradoxical. Someone comes up like, Jesus, I wanna join. I wanna be part of what's going on. No, go home. You know, like that's what, and, and so it seems weird to me, but I, here, here's what I think is going on. I don't think that Jesus is trying to talk this guy out of it. I think that Jesus is able to discern that there must be some level of idealism in this man. And so what Jesus is doing, I believe, is he's just being very honest with him. He's just being very honest with this man. And so the man comes to Jesus and he says, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And Jesus just says, well, listen, man, I don't even have a place to stay tonight. He's just being honest with him. And can I just tell you, I think this is actually really important. I think there's something very insightful for us here. You know, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus or maybe you're someone who's new to Jesus, you know, I think unfortunately what can happen is sometimes there's gonna be people that in an effort to try to get you to follow Jesus, they're gonna either try to soften the message or they are going to tell you have truths or whole lies as a sales pitch to try to get you to follow Christ. And so people will tell you things like this. They'll say, hey, if you start following Jesus, 
that means that everything is gonna go good for you. If you start following Jesus, that means that you're gonna be healthy. You're never gonna get sick again. If you follow Jesus, that means your business is gonna explode and you're just gonna be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. If, if you start following Jesus, your kids will never rebel. If you start following Jesus, you'll never be anxious. You'll never be depressed ever again. You'll just always be happy all the time. If you start following Jesus, you know, all your wildest dreams are gonna come true and your hair is gonna start growing back again, right? And people will start telling you this stuff. And listen, it's no wonder that so many people become very disillusioned in what it means to follow Jesus. And so when Jesus comes in and Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place, he's not trying to talk him out of this. He's just being honest with him. Jesus is just saying, listen, you wanna follow me? That's fine. I don't know where I'm staying tonight. And by the way, that's not an exaggeration. He didn't know where he was staying. We just read that in a couple, and just the verse before this, we saw he doesn't know where he's staying this night. And I just gotta tell you that as bad of a sales pitch as this is, um, I find that Jesus's words here are just refreshingly honest. It's just refreshingly honest. I love the gospel of Luke because Luke wants us to know, he wants us to be certain of the things about Jesus. He wants us to be certain that Jesus has authority. He wants us to be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants us to be certain that Jesus is, is the way of life. But I think Luke also wants us to be clear. He wants us to be clear in what's involved in following Jesus. And a big part of what's involved in following Jesus is it requires denying personal comfort. That there are periods of following Christ, and I, I, might, I might even say it this way. I would say that not all the time, but most of the time, following Jesus requires you to get out of your comfort zone, most of the time. And I think the question that we have to force ourselves to ask here on this point is simply this. What is my next step of uncomfortable obedience to Jesus? I want you to think about that. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, what is your next step of uncomfortable obedience that Jesus is calling you into? And again, I don't know the answer to that question for you because I don't know what the circumstances of your life are. You know, but maybe for you, maybe you're a person who's investigating Christ here today. And maybe your next uncomfortable step to following Jesus is that you need to stop investigating Jesus and you need to start following him. Maybe for you, you've had one foot in and one foot out for too long and you've never really made a commitment to follow him. And listen, I understand that if you decide to follow Christ, for some of you, that means you're gonna have to lay down your life, your agenda. You're gonna have to lay down the vision that you have for your life. And maybe for you, it means a complete upheaval of, 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 of the pursuits that you're pursuing in life right now but maybe for you, that's the step you need to take. What's the next uncomfortable step? Maybe for some of you, you started following Jesus. Maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you haven't been baptized. You've never been baptized. And maybe for you, that's an uncomfortable step of obedience. But it's very clear in the New Testament that if you're a follower of Christ, your very first step of obedience is to be baptized. And some of you are like, yeah, but I don't wanna get my hair wet in front of people. And I get it, it's not comfortable. But I think the question is, what does it mean to take up our cross? A big part of it is stepping out of our comfort zone for the next step of obedience. Maybe for you, like we talked about the Hughes Life Group just a minute ago, maybe it's getting connected to biblical community. Maybe it's starting to serve. And maybe it's an act of generosity. I don't know what it is. And can I just say something else on this point before we move forward? I think that the call to deny personal comfort that Jesus extends to us, I believe it actually impacts every personality type differently. 
And so listen, I think that there's aspects of following Jesus that are gonna be uncomfortable for everyone in different ways. So for all the introverts in the room, like me, the call to be deeply connected in the lives of other people in biblical community is gonna rub against our introversion. And I know that because that's me. But if you're an extrovert, listen, the call to be in solitude with Jesus and in prayer is gonna rub against your tendencies in that way. If you're a person who's an autonomous, self-starter, driver personality, then the call to submit your life to the authority of Jesus Christ and to allow other people to speak into your life and to give them authority into your life, that is gonna rub against every aspect of your personality. And for those who are more methodical and cautious and calculated people, the call to mission that Jesus puts on us is gonna push against your personality. And I'm just saying, following Jesus, I think oftentimes requires that we step outside of our comfort zones. So what is the way of the cross? I believe it's the way of sacrificial love for others. I think it's the way of denying personal comfort. I think it's also the way of defying cultural expectations. Cultural expectations. Once you see this next thing that happens, the Bible says another guy, and Jesus has an interaction with another guy. And so Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. All right, wow. So I gotta say, I don't know about you, but when I first read this this week, this was a little troubling to me. This one was a little hard because it seems like, it seems like what just happened is Jesus looked at this guy and said, follow me. And the guy said, okay, I will, but first let me go to my dad's funeral. And Jesus is like, no, you come and follow me. I was like, geez, that's pretty harsh. Uh, But I, listen, it became very apparent very quick as I began to study this passage. That was not what was going on. So more than likely, here's what's happening. More than likely, this gentleman's father is probably just fine. He's probably totally healthy. Commentators point out that this statement right here, first, let me go and bury my father, actually was a very common Middle Eastern saying, and it still is to this day. And basically, it reflected a cultural expectation. And the cultural expectation was this, that if you lived with your parents or if you had a, you know, a family, that you know, your father and your mother and those kind of things, that you were obliged to fulfill their dreams and expectations of you until they passed away. And then when they passed away, you would receive your inheritance and then you were free to pursue whatever vision you wanted for your own life. And so when this man says, let me first go bury my father, most likely what he's saying is, Jesus, let me go fulfill my cultural expectation and my family expectation first. And then after I'm freed from that, then I will come and I will follow you. But Jesus responds to him and he says, let the dead bury their dead for you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Listen, I think it's very clear that what he's talking about here is this would have been a cultural expectation, a cultural expectation. Now, there was different cultural expectations in the first century than there are in the 21st century, but for sure, we still have expectations that are placed on us. You know, I think this is a big one right here. I think that this, this particular point should push up against every single one of us who are here today. Man, we are more high bound by cultural and family and peer expectations than we even realize we are. You know, and for some of us, what it means to follow Jesus is I think that what Jesus is doing is he's challenging our tendency to do what our culture, what our family, what our peers, or even what our own expectations might be of ourselves. And so I think the question, the question that we have to ask ourselves on this point is what expectations or voices carry more weight in my life than Jesus? For those of us who follow Christ, I think we need to ask that question. You know, I'm fully aware that for some of us, following Jesus is going to be misunderstood or it's going to disappoint certain people in our lives that we really care about. 
For some of us, following Jesus might be a disappointment to the dreams that our family has placed on us, or it might be disappointing to the expectations that our friends or maybe even our culture places on us, or maybe even that we ourselves place on ourselves. I think we all know this, that, for, that if we follow Christ, that's gonna introduce certain points of unpopularity in our peer groups and our family situations with our cultural expectations that surround us. And I think, I think this is an important question that we need to ask. What expectations or voices carry more weight in my life than Jesus? I think Jesus says in the first century, and I think he says in this century, allegiance to me has to override everything, including even the expectations that are placed on you. So what's the way of the cross? I think it's the way of sacrificial love for others, denying personal comfort, defying cultural expectations. Here's the last one. Dying to previous allegiances and past regrets. I think this is a big one. So check this out. This next guy comes to Jesus and look what the Bible says. It says, still another man said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, seems like a very reasonable request. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I just wanna go say goodbye to my family. Let me just go say goodbye. And Jesus' response, once again, seems very intense. Here's what Jesus says. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Now that seems extreme to us, but again, here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus is able to discern something in this man's heart. And commentators will point out that when Jesus says this statement right here, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, that that actually would have, uh, that actually would have alluded to a very famous saying that was used back in this time. And it actually was something that was originated by a guy named Hesiod. And so there's this guy in 700 BC, his name was Hesiod, and he actually had this statement. He said this, you can't plow a furrow looking backwards. And so what's the idea? I actually think this is pretty brilliant. Here's the analogy, right? The analogy is that of plowing. And if you're plowing, you're trying to plow a straight line. And what Jesus is saying and what the saying was saying was this, you can't plow a straight line and look backwards at the same time. You can't do that. I think we all know this. I've, um, I've actually used this illustration before, but I think it's pretty fitting here. So I remember when I was trying to teach my oldest son how to mow the lawn, you know? Uh, so he's 12, so I was teaching him how to mow the lawn. When he was like 11 years old, I was starting to teach him. And I remember um, I was trying to show him how to make the straight lines, you know, because when you mow, you gotta have the straight lines, man, right? That's important. So I was trying to show him how to do that. And um, so when he took his first stab at it, his lines were all over the place. They were just like, you know, everywhere, all wavy and jagged. And so I, I pulled him to the side. I said, hey, buddy, I said, let me show you how to make straight lines. I said, look at your lines. His lines were all like this. And he goes, man, my lines are all over the place. He said, why are my lines all over the place? I said, I'll tell you why your lines are all over the place. Because you're looking all over the place. I was like, when you're mowing, you're looking around you, you're looking behind you. I said, here's the key. This is the trick. I said, if you want to plow a straight line, if you want to mow a straight line, you fix your gaze resolutely, right, on some object that's in the far off distance, like a tree or something like that. And you aim for it. You don't look down. You don't look around. You don't look behind you. You aim for that tree and you will plow a straight line. You will make a straight line. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. In other words, if I could phrase it this way, I think that what he's saying is that part of what it means to follow him is it means denying previous allegiances and past regrets, I think the question that we need to ask here is, to what do I look back? To what do I look back? What distracts me? What frustrates my, or, or uh, what, what, what distracts, frustrates, or um, allegiances cause me, that's not the right way to say that. <laughs> what, what distractions or frustrations cause my allegiance to waver? It's the way that I wanna phrase that. How, how does that look for me? And you know, I think sometimes for some of us, we look back, the things that we look back at, we look back regretfully, 
Sometimes we look back and we, we regret. We look back at the mistakes that we've made. We look back at the decisions that we made and we start to wonder, man, can God ever forgive me for that? How could God ever use me? Do you know what I used to be? Do you know what I used to do? And I think what it means to follow Jesus, to take the way of the cross, is it means that you have to be willing to not look back at those things. Don't let your past define you anymore. Look forward to what God has in store for you. For some of us, I think we look back not regretfully. I think we look back longingly. We long for the things that we used to be part of before we follow Jesus. We long for our previous sexual life. We long for our previous party life. We long for our previous life pursuing greed or whatever it is that, that we do. And we look back longingly. Listen, the Israelites did that. Some of you might remember in the Old Testament, the Bible actually tells us that the Israelites were released from Egyptian captivity. They were slaves in Egypt. And the Bible tells us, in fact, in Acts, it tells us that our ancestors, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. That once they were liberated from slavery, they were in freedom. And when they were in freedom, their hearts longed to go back to the things that once enslaved them. And I think sometimes that happens with us too. We're liberated from the things that enslave us by Jesus. And then when we find ourselves in a place of freedom, we longing look back for the things that we once had. And I think, I think part of what it means to follow Christ I think part of what it means to take the way of the cross is it means that we die to those things. We die to the previous allegiances of our past and our regrets. You know, and I think it could be a lot of these things, but what is the way, of the way of the cross? I think the way of the cross includes at least these four things that we see in this passage. You know, before we wrap up, let me just tell you one more very important aspect of what it means to take up our cross and to follow the way of the cross. And that's this, you know, I think one important thing we need to know is that our cross is a custom cross. I think this is very, very important for all of us to hear in this room. I think Jesus is calling every single one of us to take up our cross and follow him. But here's the reality of that situation. Your cross is gonna be very different than my cross. Every cross, no two crosses are the same. It is a custom cross. It is a custom cross. And, you know, I was just thinking about this. I was reminded of, um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a time after Jesus rose from the dead, he was talking with Peter, and he was telling Peter the cross that Peter was going to have to bear. He was explaining to him the life and the death that Peter had to live and die. And do you guys remember what Peter said? He heard this, and do you remember what his first response was? His, refer his first response after he heard this was he pointed immediately to John. Right? He pointed to one of the sons of thunder and he said this, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? That was his response. What about him? And Jesus said to him, if, that's my, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You follow me. He said, don't worry about John. He's got his own cross. You have a cross. It's a custom cross. And I think because of that, the question that we need to ask ourselves here is just simply this. What's your cross? What is the cross that Jesus is calling you to bear? What is that? And I don't know what that is. Maybe for you, it's one of the four things that we mentioned. Maybe for you, there's a person that today God is calling you to sacrificially love and to serve, to take the way of the cross. Maybe there's a family member or a relationship in which he's asking you to do this. Maybe for you, the way of the cross for you, the cross that you have is that there's an aspect of personal comfort he's asking you to lay down. What is your next step of uncomfortable obedience? Maybe for you, Jesus is asking you to defy 
some expectations that are placed on you by our culture, by your family, by your friends, by yourself. Maybe Jesus is asking you to cut ties with a previous allegiance, or maybe he's asking you to finally bid farewell to some regrets that you carry with you. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But as you think about the cross that he is asking you to bear, I believe that what Jesus is asking us to do is he's asking us to take up the way of the cross. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and as they do, um, my hope is to actually end in a way that encourages you. And so I wanted to share something with you that I just... I just want to tell you, it was personally very encouraging to me, very encouraging and helpful to me. And my hope is that it would just be encouraging and helpful to you too. And so um, I just tell you, about mid-2020, somewhere in the middle of all the madness of 2020, I was in a particular season in my journey with Jesus as I've been following Christ. I was in a particular season that the best way I can describe it is it was particularly crossy. There's a lot of crosses. I just felt like there was a lot that was, it was just really challenging and it was really hard. And, and the thought of, of what it would look like to get through this season was just it, was just, it was a challenging season. And I remember for the longest time, for the longest time, there's this little saying that I would say to myself. And it was a saying that was very, very encouraging to me. And basically it was, it was just this. I would just tell myself, don't quit. Just don't quit, don't quit. And this actually stems from something a friend said to me. He said this to me years ago. He said, it seems to me that in the Christian life, if you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. And I don't know why, but I thought that was really impactful. And so for the longest time, I would, when things got hard, I would just tell myself, just don't quit, don't quit. And I don't mean like, don't quit your job. That's not what I meant. I meant like, don't quit doing the right thing. Don't quit following Jesus. Don't quit loving people. Don't quit on the vision that God has for your life. And so for me, that was always really encouraging because I don't know, maybe it's my personality, but I tend to talk to myself like a coach a lot. And so I'm like, come on, man, you got it. Don't quit. And I'd be like, all right, that helped. But this was a really hard season, a really challenging one. And I remember I was um, spending some time with the Lord. And as I was spending some time with the Lord, a new phrase came to my mind a new phrase did. And I'm not saying that it was from God because I don't, I, don't, I don't really want to say that. I don't know if it was from God, but I can just tell you that this was very, very, very helpful for me. And it came in light of pretty much everything that we talked about here today. And this is the phrase that came into my mind. I no longer was thinking, don't quit. And actually, it actually impacted me so heavily, I wrote it down in my journal. And it was this, don't squirm, don't squirm. And let me tell you why that was so impactful to me. Because when I think about what it means to, to follow Jesus and to take up our cross, when I think about that, you know, a lot of times when the pressure's on and a lot of times when things are challenging, my first reaction is, yeah, I won't quit, but man, I want out. And I wanna run and I wanna squirm and I wanna get out from under the pressure. But I was reminded in those moments that, listen, the goal, this is so important, the goal of the Christian life is not that we become more comfortable. The goal of the Christian life is that we become more Christ-like, is that we would know Jesus, that we would look more like Jesus, that we would act more like Jesus, that we would share in the fellowship of being more like Christ and knowing him. That's the goal of the Christian life. And listen, we cannot arrive there without the cross, we can't follow him without the cross. And so I was so encouraged that moment. I actually was reminded of Hebrews. And some of you guys might know this verse. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for the joy. And you know what this reminded me of? That when Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem, he wasn't looking at the cross. He was looking through the cross because he knew what was on the other side of the cross was something that would be used greatly for his glory and for the good of all of those who would follow him. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your cross is that God has in front of you today, but can I tell you what I believe with all of my heart? I believe that you have a heavenly father who loves you. And I believe that he's not gonna introduce anything in your life that isn't ultimately gonna lead to your good and to his glory if you would be willing to pick up your cross and follow him for the joy that is set before you. I think what Jesus said is true. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me for whoever would try to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it because in Jesus' life and in Jesus' joy. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I do just wanna say thank you. Thank you that you, that you took our cross. Thank you that, you that you took the way of the cross. Thank you that you gave yourself for us, Lord, that you showed yourself in sacrificial love. You gave yourself in that way. Thank you that you laid down your comforts for our sake. And God, thank you that because of that, we have life. And so I pray that as you uh, lead us into what it means to follow you, would you give us a vision for what it looks like to take up our cross as we follow you? And so as we have an opportunity to worship and to pray and to sing, even here right now, I pray that you'd help us to speak to you. I pray you'd speak to us and help us to live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.